0: Welcome to We Are ACHE of Massachusetts, a podcast series produced by the Massachusetts chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives. This series features educational and inspiring conversations with leading game changers in the healthcare field, offering insight into the challenges of healthcare professionals in the 21st century. Now, here's your host, Jordan Rich.
1: Welcome. On this episode of our podcast, we're going to be discussing the social determinants of health, or SDH as it's known. What those determinants are, how they impact the health of our communities, and what are the best and most effective ways to better improve not only our healthcare system, but our lives in society. My guest today is Dr. Amarine Nihal, a well-regarded pediatrician with many years of practice in Boston. She's now in New York City, the president and founder of the Nihal Group, a healthcare consulting company with a special focus on social determinants of health. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about SDH? Uh, What are the various factors?
2: Right. Thank you for that question. So social determinants of health, either called SDH, as you said, or SDOH, either one goes, is defined by... What uh, places where people live, work, study, grow up, age, pray, um, and the environments that uh, affect their options for um, access to healthcare, good health care choices. So they fall into five broad categories from neighborhood and built environment, which means like, do you have bike paths or not? Um, you know, access to health care. So how far do you have to go to get to a clinic? social and community context, like do you have a church group or a Jewish group or something where you can mm. have a sense of, um, you know, address loneliness, education, and economic economic stability. Um, so meaning that, you know, do you have access to regular jobs? So it's really about talking about access, so that when we talk about personal responsibility, we're first thinking about what options people have, mm-hmm. and then we address personal responsibility.
1: It does indicate, when you lay it out that way, doctor, how intricately connected everything is to the overall health of our nation or any nation?
2: Absolutely. So this is something that um, really is a community responsibility, um, depending on the country and the philosophical context, the role of government, maybe more or less. Um, But I think, you know, we talk about it takes a village and I think social determinants of health is all about really, it takes a village that you have these multiple inputs And we need to think about this in a systems way.
1: Doctor, what's the impact of social determinants of health on, say, the appointment show rate, which is so critical to those in need?
2: It's a great question. So the short answer is high. But to unpack that a little bit, I would say this is based on my experience as both a former chief medical officer in a federally qualified health center in New York City, as well as a former medical director in Massachusetts Medicaid. And because social determinants of health is, affects these populations that typically are on Medicaid, Medicare, uninsured. So the impact is that if we talk about social determinants of health, including transportation, then it may be that you have to take three bus lines to get to your appointment. And so now you don't have control over when you get there. You might get there past the 15-minute thir- uh, grace period and now you've missed your appointment, and now it's three weeks until you can get another one. Um, And you know, you might be saying, well, personal responsibility, you should come Mm. on time, but can you really control the bus lines? Another example is say that you have food insecurity, you're diabetic, you're intending to go to show up for your appointment, and you ran out of food the day before, now you're dizzy. Can you reasonably get to your appointment? And now you're in this cycle, this snowball effect of You can't get to your appointment because you don't have food. And without the appointment, you can't get your medications and your situation is going to worsen.
1: These are factors that a lot of us don't even ponder and think about, but all of us are affected by, as you say, transportation, other elements of the environment, where we play, how we play. So many factors come into play. And you talk about a system that is so expensive. Is there a sense that with good uh, social engineering and and determining a better path for some of these social determinants, we can lower costs really effectively?
2: There's a lot of evidence on that, whether it's, you know, that you Institute a nutrition program or a housing program, some payers have seen costs fall as much as 11% mm. in a two year period on instituting programs that even address only one aspect of the five social determinants of health, um, the five broad categories. Although, you know, if you look at different, um, because as you reference, it's so complex, different people have broken it down different ways, but the most common construct has those five. So, Yes, I mean it's extremely important. I think the thing that I worry about is, you know, the opportunity is also the threat, right? So the opportunity in the United States is that we're pro-business. Business has already made relationships with customers, and this could be a way for them to expand. So expand rather mm-hmm. their existing um, services now with social determinants. The threat is that one of the problems in America is that healthcare. 30% of healthcare costs is administrative burden. And some of that is driven by fragmentation and too many players and everybody has their own form. So if we go the pro business route and we allow competition, how many ways in which is this gonna get fragmented? And let's say somebody offers a better deal this month or let's say whatever program, you get somebody switching from company A to company B to company C back to company A looking for the best deal. What does that do with that data feed, right? Every company is going to have a fraction of that person's data. Can you really build good programs when you don't have secure, consistent, complete Mm. data?
1: That raises the question once again of what role does the public portion of it have? What role does the private have? And do the two work together enough now to get some relief for folks?
2: That's a really good question. From my experience on the state side, I would say that with good reason, a lot of times uh, privacy advocates have ensured that laws really limit the kind of data that are shared. At the same time, companies, um, you know, I don't know the last time you signed up for something, you probably signed something that was like five or 10 pages and you just had to, you were like, I just want to get this service. (laughs) of course. And you click, 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 yes, accept, accept, accept. So companies have kind of put do done this gatekeeping to get the data they need they need. But then the laws prevent that data to be shared with government and people often have distrust of government. but frankly, I'm not sure that I trust, you know, one person versus the other, mm. you know government versus a company CEO. I think human beings are human beings and if there's not, they're not boundaries or you know gatekeeping or oversight. I think people sometimes kind of fudge a little bit, mm. and and I'm just con- so I'm concerned looking at prior examples. Like let's look at electronic health record, right? There's so much out there about burnout of physicians, nurses, of you know waste and uh, time and costs related to EHR because we made it a business incentive. We said, go out there and innovate. All these companies sprang up. They had no incentive to share data. It's really hard to share data. Yes, at a very, very high level, if you're like an institution CIO, like chief information officer, you probably have the data you need. If you're the frontline physician or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant who is interfacing with a patient in a 15 minute visit, you are going to have to click through multiple things before you can access another electronic health record. Hmm. So I am concerned about how the business approach potentially could lead to fragmentation of data. And I'm also worried about who owns that data. Does the consumer own it? Or does the company own it because they're providing that service? And then that gets into a lot of questions.
1: You work in your own organization now, I imagine with a lot of community groups. How do you engage Organizations, community groups, and others to get involved, to step up to the plate, to provide dollars for some of the things we're talking about, you know, motivating people to do this for all the right reasons?
2: Yeah, so that's a very good question. I would say that we need to think about resources broadly. So, time is a resource, Um, trust is a huge resource. And yes, money is a resource. And sometimes the resources you need come from multiple sources. So there are those places that are funders and have the money. And oftentimes you need to show impact. Otherwise, it may be that somebody just has a soft spot in their heart for something or they have a PhD in something and that's, you know, their interest. Um, There are various ways to engage funders. I think when it comes to engaging communities, if we're going to truly talk about community with like a small C, like boots on the ground, who is like running your your, uh, corner store, um, grocery store? that is community with a small C and that's really where the action is. And that really is through trust and that's through relationships and that's through authenticity because these communities have seen it all. They've seen people come in with their Mm. big ideas their big money. They take a lot of photos and then they're gone and there's no sustainability and maybe the money didn't go the right place. Um, And so these communities want to know like what's in it for them. Can they trust you? Are you engaged? Are you going to promote sustainability Are you going to be there next year or is this just a lot? So you have to think about resources beyond just money, but you have to think about the relationships and trust and engagement.
1: We're in the information age, the explosion of information. Is that helping you and people in your field not only promote this idea of of inclusion and getting involved in community, but is it actually making a difference? Are people now much more aware of what we're talking about, therefore taking action?
2: Yes and no. I'd say that with everything, there it's always a double-edged sword. So we can reach people in ways that we never could. Um, So one of the accolades, I guess, I have is that I have one hundred and eighty-nine thousand followers on LinkedIn. So I have tremendous reach. When I put something out there, thousands of people see it. But who's seeing it? It's probably that's people who already decided to follow me, right? right? So this is a little bit of an echo chamber. So how do we get beyond those echo chambers? Um, and then the other thing is that, right, We, ha- because of the echo chambers, we signal things in certain ways, like somebody might use personal responsibility, somebody else might use entitlement, and that's going to give different emotions to different people. Um, but maybe you're actually talking about the same thing, which is that we want to use resources wisely, have good stewardship of resources to deliver outcomes and sometimes you need to support somebody because they're just have in a tough spot and we believe in humanism. And you do still have to hold people accountable. So I think part of the challenge with the information age is that we have created more echo chambers and people tune out very quickly. So the ability to cross to both sides of whatever spectrum you're talking about is really
1: hard. Dr. Nihal, we all know that there is a history in our nation, in our culture, Of oppression of various groups for various reasons. This is something we have to acknowledge and overcome. And how are we doing in that area? I know it's a broad question. And how can we empower communities of need in the current climate?
2: Thank you. That's a really important question. Tough one, Um, but I'd say that we have made progress, but we are not there yet. I mean, you know, they say the arc of justice is long, Mm -hmm. um, and it's not probably going to happen completely in our lifetimes. I would recommend that. We need to get outside of very specific identities by which advocacy has traditionally happened. And I think we need to zoom out and find common denominators. So, you know, there was a New York Times article recently about, I think, close to a million children have been disenrolled from Medicaid and um, and CHIP because of um, paperwork barriers. Um, And they're just having, you know, they might be eligible, now they're uninsured because they can't re-enroll. Talk to a small business owner who might be on a different political spectrum end and they will tell you, oh, my God, I hate paperwork It Mm -hmm. is constantly getting in my way. So maybe we back away from the identity or the political um, messaging and we say this is a process that's a real problem. And whenever you increase paperwork without showing that that paperwork results in a better outcome. Are you really reducing fraud? Are you really reducing abuse? And if you're not, then that paperwork needs to go away. We need to streamline. We need to allow people to generate value and not spend their energy on barriers. Um, And I, I think we have to incentivize decision makers, not just to report Oh, I opened this new center. I got this much more funding. Not just those metrics. I think we need metrics that show I reduced inefficiency by this much. I reduced barriers by this much, um, because you know these barriers do cut across um, many groups. Obviously, there are some groups that were overtly labeled as not quite human in slavery, and that had a huge impact in many ways, and that has not gone away. We have to acknowledge that it doesn't have to be a shameful thing because that is unfortunately part of the history of many countries. But I think we have to be very pragmatic and say there was a time when we had laws in place that as a human being, you might be returned to your owner the same way that if somebody steals a car, the car gets returned to the owner. That's pretty significant and we have to acknowledge that. At the same time, we can acknowledge that there are other groups that also suffer.
1: I think your response to that was not only pragmatic, but reasoned and very humane in in every sense of the word. And I really appreciate that. We have a standard closing question for our podcast guests, which actually has worked out beautifully because everyone has an answer and it involves technology. So I'll ask it to you. What's your greatest hope for new technologies that will have the impact in, say, five years to improve care, uh, lower costs and really attack the social determinants of health question. What do you see?
2: I would love for there to be a way for technology to really lift all boats. So we know that, for instance, in the United States, there's huge disparities in rural areas in terms of access, and maybe telehealth is an opportunity there. At the same time, you could live in an inner city and be that person taking three buses and it's very hard for you to get care. Maybe telehealth works there, right? So let's find those common denominators and find ways to empower the individual, give them choices, give them access, allow them to own the knowledge, allow them to partner with people to really elevate everybody's knowledge. Because I'm a physician. I have learned so much from nurses, from community health workers, from patients, from moms, because I'm a pediatrician. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I've been able to transmit knowledge as well. But I think we have to really partner and find ways that technology can help form community groups, like maybe people can find groups online and they can support each other, they can positively compete to reduce their whatever, A1C or diabetic metrics, allow people to be more connected rather than more lonely through technology.
1: Before we let you go, would you remind people about your presence on the web and how they can find out more about your group?
2: Absolutely. So, thank you for that question. So, I do have a LinkedIn profile. So, my name will probably be on the podcast spelled out. Um, I also just started my own consulting firm. So, it's Nihal Group, which is N E H A L G R O U P dot com. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Nihal. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, but and, you know, I'm, I'm very vocal, so you will you will definitely see me if you're if you're looking for me.
1: Well, a lot of people will perhaps want to network with you and, and find out more. But thank you so much for spending a little time with us and sharing with the ACHE community what you're all about. And it's a, a great, great mission that we want to support. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: If you're looking to grow your career, then consider joining other leaders in healthcare and becoming an American College of Healthcare Executives member. There are many benefits to joining the Massachusetts chapter of ACHE. You'll be among the leaders in healthcare, gaining knowledge and skill sets that will help you grow professionally and excel at your job. You'll enjoy greater satisfaction and the potential to enhance your career. And you'll be giving back to your profession in positive and inspiring ways. As a member of ACHE, you'll join more than 48,000 healthcare leaders from across the United States and the world who are dedicated to improving healthcare and advancing the profession of healthcare management. Visit ache.org/membership. That's ache.org/membership.